This is The Balanced Dilemma. We tackle the often uniquely, but not always, female dilemma managing life, work, family, and self. I'm Maura Carlin. And I'm Christy Derrico. At The Balanced Dilemma, we speak with women and men to hear their balanced stories. Our guests are entrepreneurs, reinventors, creators, executives, parents, and partners, telling us what we really want to know. How the heck did they manage that? And can you have it all and all at the same time? Today's guest is Dr. Risa Riger, and Dr. Riger is a PhD clinical psychologist, international speaker, researcher, and consultant, and I'm also going to add an entrepreneur. She's the creator of the trademark term disruptive self-ownership. We're going to find out what that is, and she's also an expert in change, helping us not to be scared of that word. Today, she's sharing advice on how to thrive personally and professionally in a world of constant upheaval. Plus, and importantly, we're going to tackle some of the mental health challenges brought on and worsened by the last two years of the pandemic. Welcome to The Balanced Dilemma, Risa. I'm so delighted to be here with you and your terrific audience. Let's start with a little bit of your background and personal story. Did you have a career plan? Did you always want to be a psychologist? That's really a great place to start. I would say not necessarily, but what I know is that I was always interested in people, in people's stories, and what helps to form us to who we are, how we behave, how we feel, and how do we approach life. Now, I also read that you took three years off uh, to work and travel before going to college. Do you think that there's an importance of life experience in Uh, your ultimate end goal in life? (laughs) Well, everyone's journey is different. And so what may have been right for me may not be right for anyone else. But for me, taking that pause and experiencing myself in front of a different backdrop and getting to understand who I am, who I was, and having different life experiences was really important for me in my development. All right, so the gap year is a popularized concept now, but I imagine that it wasn't the case when you were going to college, although it wasn't so long ago. How did your family feel about this gap? Did they support you? Did they encourage you to do it? Or did you have to say, hey, look, this is what I'm doing and you have to accept it? At different times, it was a combination of everything that you said. But my parents did respect the fact that there's education that one gets from books and that there's education that one gets from life. And that to be full humans, we really needed to have both. Now, you ultimately did go back to school and you've got a number of degrees besides a bachelor's degree, two masters and a Ph.D., How much of what you did was planned versus opportunities taken? So the best way I can answer that is that when I came back from my travels, that I had an idea of where I wanted to go to school. And then when I went and visited it, I realized it was completely the wrong place for me. And so I needed to regroup and with the mindset of a teenager, because I was still a teenager, I thought, okay, no more Midwest. And then and then my my mother's sister said to me, you know, you don't like the cold weather. Go to California. Hmm. And so by that alone, it seemed like a great idea. So I went to school in California. They gave me a fantastic financial package. And me and my bicycle in a box 
left for California. I have to have a, ask a question. Where did your travels take you in this excursion? <laughs> I traveled from Israel to Scotland and stayed in Paris for a while and got a job as an au pair for people who were with the American Foreign Service. So that took care of my housing, some money, and some food. So here's an obvious question. Um, I had a friend who was a college counselor who said 25% or less of her clientele, the, the students going to college, had ever held a job. This experience of yours is nothing like that. Do you advocate to people to have their children go on an experience like that in this day and age? I advocate for people to have their children have responsibility. And whether it's in the form of a travel or of a job, that the importance of responsibility helps children develop a sense of self and a sense of internal competency. And they're having responsibility to someone other than their parents and accountability in terms of employment. They have to do what they're told and get the job done. Absolutely. And so there are so many components of what it means to do what you need to do, get it done, even if it's not your favorite thing, that you still need to do it, get through it and internalize doing a good job. So talking about children, you're married with two children and two dogs, and all of that is on your professional bio. We have other guests who've said, don't put that stuff on your bio. Why did you? I think it's very important, you know, particularly as women who when we see even an Instagram, right, and we see that there were some people who during the pandemic when we were on shutdown, on Saturday evenings, they were recreating the Chicago skyline with recycled materials. And you're thinking, oh, my God, I'm just trying to get dinner on the table. So I think it was really important to not make me an Instagram moment but to make me a real person and that my responsibilities are beyond just uh, my job, which is extremely important to me and a source of tremendous joy. How, if at all, did your experiences as a wife, mother, inform your career? One of the things that's happening now, and finally so, is that we're giving value to the skills that we develop as parents. And so... That becomes so important. Uh, What I developed in terms of understanding what a relationship really looks like on the ground when people are pulled in different uh, in different directions and how we come together to make that work or how we come together to try to make that work or how we try to come together. And isn't wouldn't you agree that the experience of parenting and all of the aspects of being a parent meeting deadlines, getting your children where they need to go. It's a similar uh, philosophy to having had a job as a, a young person. It's accountability and that can enrich you as an employee or a, a perspective a consultant versus being one dimensional and only having to think about yourself. Thinking beyond yourself becomes crucial. And even if you're not a parent specifically, there are ways that you mentor and that you have impact on other people. Did you alter your career when your children were younger? Absolutely. 
And uh, I talk about that actually in one of my videos that I put up on Instagram because I wanted to be able to get this material out, which is that there were things that I couldn't do. There were things that I needed to put on hold. And even if we put it on hold then and we make conscious decisions about it, we're giving it a sabbatical. We're not saying that it doesn't exist and we're ne- when we can't come back to it. I like that. <laughs> Your practice seems to focus more on women uh, in professional activities, or at least you have a component of your practice that focuses on that. Was that intentional or accidental, and why? Well, as a woman with multiple areas of responsibility, I think that women, particularly as they were joining the workforce more and more, really needed more of a roadmap and a way of addressing what these different pulls and requirements and obligations in their lives, what that looked like and how do you manage it. However, at the same time, men also needed that because there was a new model that was in the process of being formed and is still being formed. One of the things that Christy and I talk about, though, is a lot of the information out there on how to manage your day, how to manage time, are really geared towards men more so than women. Christy, you had an example of some guy who slept in a tent? Yes, and basically the, a miracle morning and not answering the phone till noon. And Maura and I said, oh, who's going to handle the phone call from the nurse that your child's just thrown up and they need to be picked up in 15 minutes? So it seems that you're giving a platform for a more female-centric model to achieve optimization versus things just that wouldn't work for a working mother or any mother. <laughs> let, me, let me share this with you, uh, that for men, it was like, I'm putting on my hat. Like, what hat am I wearing right now? And that comes from, I believe, this is my thinking on it, that when men went to work, they went to the closet, they put their hat on, and they went out. And when they came home, they took their hat off. And so that this idea of, you know, what hat am I wearing now? I think that for women, it's a completely different model. The hats are always there. The hats are always there. We do not have one hat on at a time. The hats are always there. And what we learn how to do is how to tilt our heads for each hat that we need at that moment. Mm -hmm. And so there's a shifting, but it's not like you have amnesia, that something doesn't exist because you're in this other spot. You're listening to The Balanced Dilemma. We're speaking with Dr. Risa Riger. Risa, You were mentioning before hats. Men go to work, they put on their work hat, they come home, they take the work hat off. And for women, it's almost like we're wearing crazy hat day all the time because we're multitasking. And this is one of the concepts that I found are advocated but are very difficult for women, which is deep concentration, the ability to um, highly focus because we're always multitasking. Do you offer a recommendation on how we can try to stop doing this? Or how do you think we can solve this problem so we women can get that deep concentration and what they need to focus on what they need to do? First off, there's the idea of multitasking, which from a neuroscience perspective really doesn't exist. Multitasking really doesn't exist. What happens is we have splintered attention. And so we have simultaneous splintered attention. So one of the things that we know is when we shift from 
when we shift from one task to the next task, that it takes energy and effort getting into that mindset and then moving along and then having to come back and retrieve. So one thing that I suggest is be where you are at the moment. And that requires focus, brain integration, and a little bit later, I'm not going to do it right now, I'll teach you a breathing exercise to help you do that. I can't wait. (laughs) So sticking with the hats for just one more moment, is this something that's hardwired into women? Is it an adaptive behavior? Um, We had one guest who said women are not better at multitasking necessarily than men, but somehow we're the ones who are wearing all the hats. The best way I can answer that is to say that because women are the people who become mothers, that there's a different sense of our self-boundaries. And so that we make space to have another, another person in our mindset, take space in our head so that when we think, We don't necessarily think about me. We shift and then think about a we. Interesting. I like that. I'd like to switch to entrepreneurship (laughs) because as I started off with, your practice is a business. And we don't always think of psychologists and, you know, therapists and tutors as running businesses. Talk about that and what you needed to do and learn First off, if I was in the mindset that I needed to know how to do it before I would start doing it, I would have never began because graduate school was fantastic. I learned so much. And just to give you a fast example, when people ask me a question like, well, how do you keep your books? And I looked at them sideways and I was like, well, why wouldn't I keep my books? I love them. I read them. (laughs) And, you know, uh, so I was really starting from a place of virtually no understanding of what to do. But I was absolutely determined. I had decided that this was what I was going to do. I was going to start my own practice. And you recognize there was an importance to having a business mind and a business focus to do this at that time it wasn't that developed frankly uh, it was just this was I, what was i would i was going to do and i was going to take one step at a time so i started talking to people and meeting people and then i started getting referrals and it really started like that i will say that i i personally not that i recommend it for anyone else but at the time this really wasn't something that people really talked about. Well, that was a question I was going to ask you. So in your graduate studies to become a psychologist, did anyone say you should take a little business class? Not for a second. Not for a second. And that, that's very interesting because our children have studied uh, theater and entertainment. And at one point, they recommended my daughter who was going to be an actor to take a, a business class. And that has been... The, she credits that to being part of her success today that they taught her what a contract was taught her how to copyright and if you don't address that you could just be uh the victim of unscrupulous people or your business plans can fail so you started this little business you had to keep books and uh submit bills and get an accountant and all that did you rely upon anything to learn how to do that basically get out there start doing it see what worked and iterate 
And the most important thing was to keep talking to people about what I did, the work that I did. Even though graduate school didn't prepare me for starting up a practice, what graduate school did prepare me for was how to help people, no matter where they were in their lives, help them make the changes and help them grow in the ways that were helpful and important to them. You've gone actually gone further and developed proprietary techniques, which is even more of a business standard. Tell us about why, how, and why it was important to you. I'm an integrative thinker. What is that? So going back to my earliest college days, I never thought in terms of mind and as, as a separate entity body, I was always interested in how one affected the other and what were these feedback loops like. So we have vocabulary for it now called mind-body integration. Then there wasn't that idea. And so I'm always wondering, like, what's happening with people? How are they being affected? What can we do about that? How to help somebody get through and develop and create the lives that they want for themselves and so i was in a i was in a store and there was a woman who came in this is pre-pandemic and the salesperson said to her very honestly that looks great on you and this woman said well you know it's old this and that and the salesperson reiterated and this woman was having such a hard time accepting the compliment and i couldn't i finally said just say thank you (laughs) Just say, just say thank you. And so we get stuck in very old habits, mindsets, in our own experiences, in our own sense of ourselves. And this may be something that's happened a long time ago. And so what happened was that I wanted to help people be able to disrupt and update the stories of themselves you're listening to The Balanced Dilemma. We are speaking with Dr. Risa Riger. Risa, can you explain to us what is self-ownership? Self-ownership, just quickly, came about because I was hearing about self-love, self-esteem, self-respect, so many self-words. But what I realized was missing from the literature was self-ownership. So the way I created and defined self-ownership is that it's the foundation that holds onto and integrates your experiences in the continuing growth and evolution of you. And when you connect your pieces, you connect with your power so that you can grow freedom, clarity, and courage to make decisions that move you forward. So is that like the stories we tell ourselves about our life? It can be, but oftentimes what happens is that we have messy parts to ourselves that either someone said to us early on, you know, don't say that, don't be that, we got shamed, we were we were messaged. And so oftentimes we have separated off pieces of ourselves that we have disowned. And so that the self-ownership process and disruptive self-ownership isn't about cherry-picking aspects of ourselves. It's about looking at all of who we are so that we can dispel outdated beliefs about yourself and break through what's holding you back. And it supports you in living the 10.0 version of yourself without leaving yourself behind. You can go back, you can learn from your experiences, but that idea that I've turned the page, I've left that part of myself behind, is absolute mythology. 
in the article, which is kind of interesting that the title is actually a clinical psychologist on how to claim every part of yourself, even the messy ones. You wrote that in a room full of competent, accomplished women, we tend to overvalue our deficiencies and undervalue our accomplishments. Is this a uniquely female problem? It can be, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. There are many, many men who also tend to stay with the negative and the problematic aspects of themselves. They only see what their deficiency is and they don't necessarily see where their accomplishments are. Now, it's important to be able to see where you need growth, as it is important to be able to look at what you've done well. What do you learn from doing well? But what's interesting in this quote is that you you said it in a room full of, of people. And we have interviewed many women who have expressed reticence at self-promoting, at taking the victory lap. And it's not just the women. There's a perception, as has been pointed out in Sheryl Sandberg's book, for example, she she recommends relentless pleasantness to uh, achieve success. So where where is it? Is it the fault of the recipients? Is it something in ourself? How do we take the victory lap, self-promote, give credit where credit is due, but do it in a way that we will be well, well received and not be rejected for self-promoting? We do not have a term for what it means to be in self-ownership and own it all. Own what went well, own what didn't go well. And so we need to have that ownership and that agency within ourselves. So we have words like selfish and selfless. But we don't have a space, a terminology and a language to say, this is who I am. This is what I've done. And and I can speak that. And sometimes women feel, especially sometimes with other women, that they need to backtrack it. So women are often told to bring their best self to their career. But that doesn't really seem to fit with this idea of being your authentic self. So how do you measure those things, those concepts. When you said this right now, I'm thinking to myself, what's your best self? I mean, what is your best self? Is it something that you've like put in a box somewhere and now you take out and now now I'm going to be my best self, but later I'm not going to be my best self? I find that to be a very strange kind of dichotomy. It's compartmentalizing. It's compartmentalizing, but also we can always we can always be our best selves being our best self doesn't mean that everything's going to go right being our best self means has to do with being present and being available to deal with what life has in front of us that's our that's really our best self so i i want to put a hypothetical here so sure. mara and i are at a cocktail party right and uh a crowded room as you've put it out here and we want to talk about what we've done, our accomplishments. And the problem is sometimes when women do that, it can look like boasting and it's not received well. So how do we incorporate this uh, th- this methodology that you're advocating to have our best self but have it well received? What do you recommend? A lot of it has to do with how you feel about yourself and really being able to accept and 
celebrate your your accomplishment in you. When you do that, first of all, you have your own energy and and an ease with which you can do that. And for women, yeah. sometimes that really takes a lot of practice. All you can do is be responsible for how you feel. You cannot control how somebody else is going to respond. So you're almost saying that there's an energy. If you work on these core foundations, there's an energy that you are going to project. And that is what people are going to feed off of or feel about you. And that will be your calling card it's not about being apologetic which is easier for women to backpedal it in as if it happened by accident right we're trying to stop say saying we're sorry yes yes we are trying to do that um and it's also a not about boasting and so if you're not about if you're not about um diminishing yourself and you're not about boasting what you're talking about is something that's factual so you're talking about things that have happened. This is these are data points. And so would you lie about that? And this leads to the discussion again an, an article you wrote about dealing with annual review season because you have the problem is the self review and how you take the criticism or uh, you know feedback. Do women handle that differently than men and how should we handle it to be most productive? Well, when I talk about self-esteem, which is, in a very, which is a very important part of disruptive self-ownership, I'm defining self-esteem differently. That it's respecting and valuing yourself so much that you are committed to seeing who you are, all the parts of yourself, even the messy ones. So with a review, there should be the positive because you've, there are things that you've done that you've done well and that needs to be acknowledged. At the same time, To be committed to growth and self-growth and self-development means that you're looking at what could be better. And I talk to people about that as being optimistic, that when you hear a piece of criticism, when you hear a piece of feedback, that if you feel that you can do better, that's a space of optimism, not a space of necessarily folding in on yourself and just taking out your taking out your perfection club and hitting yourself on the head with your perfection club. So it's not a matter of turning a negative into a positive like I'm, you know, very too careful to detail, you know, that I drive people crazy. Uh, but that's really a good thing because this job requires people to be incredibly detail-oriented. It's not turning a negative into a positive. It's not necessarily turning a positive into a negative. What it is is being able to look at it and being able to have the courage to see what's there. And if you can't see it well enough yourself, if you're not sure about it, ask someone Ask your trusted people, hey, am I perceiving this well? Is there something else that would be useful for me to know about? So we've uh, had Frank Schaefer as a guest, and this is a paraphrase of one of his quotes from his book. He writes, we need real feminism. A real feminism doesn't tell women to come into the workforce as if they were males. How does this factor into your program? Absolutely. That... And we'll save that. We'll be right back. We're here on The Balanced Dilemma with Dr. Risa Riger. We are speaking with Dr. Risa Riger. Risa, we were talking about Frank Schaefer and his book and 
His idea that real feminism doesn't tell women to come into the workforce as if they were males and normalizes parental leave for all. What are your thoughts on this? Well, in speaking with Frank and in sharing thoughts with him, that right now he talks about patriarchy. And what's important is that patriarchy, which is a power word, and matriarchy, which is also a power word, uh, we're not looking to replace patriarchy with matriarchy. What we're looking to do is to be able to have gender and we have gender fluidity and to understand that we are not necessarily stuck in little boxes regarding what our roles are and we can bring our authentic selves our skills our abilities our talents our areas of brilliance our areas of needing to improve into everything that we do do you think this will solve the problem for women in the workforce i think it's not that simple I think it's I think it's not that simple. Uh, we need to have uh, parity in pay. We need to have parity in so many different areas. But it's every step we take is a step in the right direction. Well, during the pandemic, women were put in these boxes and they ended up leaving the workforce in droves. What do you see as the long term impact uh, psychologically in particular of the pandemic? The long term impact, it depends on where you are developmentally so that for people who are starting out in their careers that impact is different than someone who uh, has a family has already raised a family has create you know has gotten to a different point in their career and so it depends but Everyone is going through change. I think the most important thing to remember is that there isn't a, for people who are holding on to, waiting to get back to how it was, that's something you got to let go of and be in the present and start with where you are now and what you can do and take in and integrate these new models of how one can work and live in order to find your own space of contentment, happiness, and growth. So do you have tools for us to deal with this change which is we're in a constant state of change do we need new skills psychologically emotionally to reduce anxiety over these concepts we're talking about yes the first thing is to steady yourself and what do i mean by that you need to be able to see where am i in myself how anxious am i feeling how angry how worried how whatever your feeling experience is, to be able to tune into yourself and be able to pinpoint where you are, where are your feet on the ground in terms of where you are. And that's the first step. You know, we look at our GPS, we put a pin in something to see where it is. We need to do that for ourselves. And what comes after that? How do you address it? One important thing to notice is when you're starting to feel anxious, upset, whatever that may be, or you want to just get into a different, more integrative state, is to do breathing. And I'm going to teach you the Dr. Riger's uh, 4 plus 4 equals 8 breathing exercise. Okay, ladies, you're going to do this with me, and I'm just going to tell you quickly, uh, you're going to breathe in for 4, hold for 4, breathe out for 8. Okay, so first, breathe in for 4. One, two, three, four. Hold for four. One, two, three, four. Breathe out gently for a count of eight. 
Okay. The reason why that we, the reason why we do this, and I'm just speaking quickly uh, for the audience sake, we can we can review this another time, uh, is that. When you breathe in, it creates a focal point for you. When you regulate your breathing, it sends powerful information and feedback to your brain about your sense of safety. When you hold for a count of four, you connect with what you've experienced internally and have bodily connection, which is so important. When you breathe out for a count of eight, you're signaling your parasympathetic nervous system that you are okay because when we're in states of heightened panic or discomfort or lack of safety, we have a tendency to hyperventilate. We do not have a long exhale. So you're setting up your body, you're setting up your brain, you're setting yourself up to have a landscape of more calm and equanimity. This is one of the positive things they're teaching in school these days. My son taught me rainbow breaths, which your hands go over your head and you breathe in and then your hands go down and you breathe out. And all of these things I think are good to center us, to calm down the anxiety, to help us focus on the now, refocus. I think it's great. And it's a space of mind-body integration. You can't leave your body behind and you can't leave your mind behind. You need them both. We can't be remiss in not discussing the huge mental health problems going on right now. And I'm going to share some statistics. Uh, According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, in February 2022, one-third of U.S. adults reported symptoms of anxiety and or depression. The World Health Organization says 25%, there was a 25% increase of anxiety and depression worldwide in the first year of the pandemic. Articles about the kids are not okay, and there's a mental health crisis among U.S. children And there's a problem that predated the pandemic with statistics from 2013 to 19, again, before the pandemic, more than one in five 12 to 17 year olds experienced a major depressive episode. We will put all that information in our show notes. But, you know, how do we address this? That is an area that really requires a lot of intervention and it's time for us to be alarmed. It's appropriate to be alarmed. One of the ways that we address it is, first of all, understanding that we're in tremendous shift. It's not happening for nothing. It's happening for reasons. And there's so much that we have put on in terms of becoming competent at different skills, you know, particularly with children. You have to be good at your school. You have to be good at basketball. You have to be good at something else. But how do you become good at you and understanding what goes on inside of you? And as to your point, Christy, that the schools are picking that up more, but at home also, we need to help our children. We need to help ourselves. We need to model for our children what being connected with ourselves is and being able to stay self-regulated so that you can share your regulation with other people in your family. So, you know, it's the old oxygen mask piece. We've had today's discussion has been predominantly about the self and how we do things individually. But We're talking about families, and many of them are two-career families. Do you feel, how do these uh, things we've been discussing factor when you have two individuals pursuing two stressful careers? Is it possible to have two careers at the same time and achieve these goals that you're laying out for us? Absolutely. 
one of the things that's so important in the work that I do is that it has to be doable. If you come up with a plan that's a huge plan, it may be a great plan, but it stays a plan. It's not actionable. And so we need to be able to take steps, take your four plus four equals eight. I have something that I call... um, the morning routine that you need to set yourself up for success to your point you can't have you can't live in a tent and not be unavailable but you can try to put together 10 minutes for yourself and here are the four f's to help set you up for your day one is finish the first f is finish do something that you can finish make your bed Unload the dishwasher. Do any, do something, but do something that you can finish because it sets your brain up for the idea that you can finish something. So that's your first accomplishment. Feet. Take your feet and go outside or get near a window. It's very important that you stay connected to your circadian rhythms. Get a little outside time. Get a little sun or nature in yourself. Three, focus. Do your four plus four equals eight breathing exercise. And Take two minutes. Take one minute. Anything you do is better than doing nothing. Don't get stuck on the perfection loop. And if you have a chance, go to your fourth F, which is feelings, and check in with yourself and just ask yourself this simple question, what am I feeling? Am I, what am I feeling uncomfortable about? What am I feeling comfortable about? Whatever it is that you're feeling, just check in with yourself and know where you are. So with your partner, is this something that you're openly talking about? Are you making these four Fs and these other plans a unified goal? How does that work in a partnership? It absolutely can be. And it absolutely can be. And that people don't have to do the same thing. They can be, they can complement one another. They can be the partners that they need to be in their relationship and and teaching someone that cleaning off the counter doesn't mean just wiping around the mess that's there you actually have to move things around and get get in there many many fights happen because of things like that so just a reminder that you can find the balance dilemma on the web at thebalancedilemma.com We've got old episodes and sign-ups for our newsletter. Find show announcements, show notes, resources, and further reading. Follow us, rate us, share us on social media at The Balanced Dilemma Podcast on Facebook and LinkedIn. And we're also on Instagram. And our podcast episodes are all available for listening on Apple, iTunes, Google, Spotify, and pretty much wherever you get listen to your podcasts. Please rate us and share us with friends. Risa. Can you have it all and all at the same time? The answer to that is yes. Can I give you a fast example? Of course. I was talking to a woman who's very accomplished and she felt that she hadn't really achieved her level of success. And then I said, well, what success? What do you mean? She said that she hadn't gotten the level of acknowledgement and the uh, promotion at work, the title that she thought that she would. Then we started to deconstruct, well, what's important in your life? Uh, She wanted to be in her career. She wanted to be in a relationship. And for her, she wanted to be a parent. And as we looked at each piece, she realized that she really had her success. But what happened was that she had had an old version of success. And so we needed to update that story so that she could really see that she wasn't her success and she actually did have it all. Risa, why don't you give everyone your how they can contact you? Okay, you can contact me on uh, on Instagram. My handle on Instagram is Dr. D R. 
Risa Riger, R-I-S-A-R-Y-G-E-R. You can contact me on LinkedIn and you can find me on my website, drrisariger.com. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Maura Carlin. I'm going to practice my breathing. I'm Christy Derrico. Thank you, Risa. It was great.